Hello, and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. I am Daniel Vincent, and I'm here with Sean Cheatham, my trusty co-host today. And we are going to be diving into more church history. Last week, we talked about Reformation, post-Reformation, or Counter-Reformation. Today, we're going to be talking about um, some of the theological implications or teachings that came out of the Reformation. Um, And with that, I will hand it over to Sean. Yeah, so specifically, we're going to be talking about the five solas, or five sole, if you want to be technically correct in Latin, um, of the Reformation. And sola in Latin just means only or alone. Mm -hmm. So these are uh, five core principles of the Reformation that have something to do with the idea of alone. And they are uh, scripture alone, sola scriptura, uh, sola deo gloria, which is um, the glory of God alone. Um, solus Christus, which is Christ alone, sola gratia, which is grace alone, and sola fide, faith alone. And these are not necessarily principles that at the time were formally established as this is the major difference between us and Rome. Uh, it's, they were um, used, I have a quote from Melanchthon here, where he had written in 1554, sola gratia justificamus et sola fide justificamor, which translates only by grace do we justify and only by faith are we justified. They, they use this terminology, but they weren't necessarily formal, formally laid out, like these are the five core places where we uh, fundamentally disagree with Rome. Uh, it's more of a 19th, 20th century, looking back at the Reformation and theologians were able to extract these four or five principles as to this, this was the heart of the debate right here. Yeah, that's exactly right. And the, the five that we'll be talking about, sola scriptura, sola dea gloria, sola fide, solus Christus, and sola gratia. And essentially what those are, sola scriptura, scripture alone, so, uh, sola dea gloria, the glory of God alone, sola fide is we're saved by faith alone, Christus, solus Christus, Christ alone, and then finally sola gratia, we're saved by grace alone. So all of these solas center around, at least the last four that we're talking about here, center around salvation and the emphasis on what salvation is ultimately about and also what it entails in terms of uh, obtaining salvation. And then sola scriptura is the basis of all of those doctrines. And so with that, we'll start off with sola scriptura. And this means scripture alone. This was one of the um, catalysts, if you will, of the Reformation. So you had Luther with his 95 Thesis already starting to challenge church tradition and church authority and seemingly to start going back to scripture as being the basis for what Christians are to use for faith and practice as the standard for how they are to live and how they are to worship. Now, sola scriptura, that doesn't mean that we can't use other means of knowledge in church tradition. We have, especially as Reformed folks, we have confessions. You know, if you're Presbyterian, you subscribe to the Westminster Confession of Faith. If you're a Reformed Baptist, you subscribe to the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Those are all fine and good, and we believe that those are very helpful, and they um, contain a summary of the Christian faith. And we subscribe to them if you're in those particular denominations. But ultimately, Scripture is our authority for faith and practice. And this is what the Reformers saw as extremely important as it relates to how they were to worship, what they were to teach, 
Um, they used this to challenge some of the practices of the church. The indulgences was is a perfect example of that. So seeing that scripture was given to us by God, it was God breathed, and therefore it has inherent authority as being breathed out by God. It carries the weight of God's authority himself, and therefore that should trump popes, it should trump church authorities and councils, because men err, men can mess up. And so we need to go back to an inerrant authority, which is scripture. And that is where the reformers wanted um, the church to move towards. The scripture is the authority that doctrine, practice, worship needs to be grounded in scripture and scripture alone. Um, but that, like I said, that doesn't mean we can't use other means of knowledge. Um, there are those who do believe that, you know, that they, they have this no creed but Christ or no creed but the Bible mindset. Uh, we don't hold to that. That's not what solo scripture means. Church tradition is very helpful. Um, but it's not our ultimate authority. We, we can use it to help inform scripture, help we can read, like we read the early church fathers, uh, you know, the Luther loved Augustine and he used him uh, to help inform his understanding of the scriptures. So there, you know, we can use these different means that God has given us to be able to study the scriptures and to interpret them. But ultimately our authority is scripture. If there is ever a question as to, whether a church father said this or that, and it seems to contradict what the scriptures say, we always must go with the scripture. Um, and this is what the, the error that the one of the errors that the Roman Catholic Church had done. They had elevated their church tradition and the Pope's authority over scripture. Um, they started introducing new practices, like we talked about the indulgences last week, that were not found in scripture and really were ways of manipulating people into getting uh, their money to pay for earthly possessions. Um, Keith Matheson notes in an article he wrote on the five solas, he said, quote, tradition was conceived as a second source of revelation and the Pope and Roman magisterium were viewed as the final authority in matters of faith and practice. So scripture was certainly seen as a means of authority, but not your ultimate authority. And so the reformers wanted to challenge that. Um, it, and really the, the reformers didn't come up with this doctrine just um, because they didn't like what the church said. They saw scripture not only as self-authoritative from the fact that it's from God, but they, it, claim, it has its in, inherent claim that it is from God. Classic verse we look at, 2 Timothy 3.16. 2 Timothy 3.16, if I can actually get my Bible there. You didn't come prepared, Dan? Oh, I came prepared. I'm just using the, the hard copy today. So I have to flip. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So, so Paul, you know, obviously, primarily he has in mind here the Old Testament because the New Testament was still being written. But Paul is saying that all scripture, regardless of what it is, it's very nature, it's breathed out by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction and training in righteousness. This is the standard by which we use to gain our understanding about God, what, he, what his will is. We don't look for other revelations. We don't look for other teachings from God. We don't look for prophecies of men or people supposedly speaking in tongues. We rely on the scriptures. We believe it's sufficient, that it gives us everything we need to know for salvation and for how we are to live our lives in this world. 
Well, the reformers saw this as being grounded um, in scripture itself. It was self-authenticating um, and it claimed to be from God. And so they believed that if this was from God, therefore it must carry the authority of God himself. And that is where um, that authority comes from. Yeah, and there's an aspect that's sometimes neglected in the debate. Uh, we Calvinists and Protestants more generally are quick to run off to claim that it's the infallible, uh, sole infallible rule of faith, but maybe not why that's important or why that is. Mm. Um, if the Bible is the word of God, I think it's fairly easy to prove that from the scriptures. If the Bible is the word of God and you set up a rival authority to it, you've set up a rival authority to God because it's God's speech. It's what God said. Mm -hmm. um, and it's very important that uh, we don't do that. We're not trying to create a, a rival authority. And when you have an authority, regardless of what it be, if it's the Pope, if it's the um, the Watchtower Bible Tract Society, what, whatever it is, um, what you have there essentially is now a, just like the serpent in the garden, yea, hath God said, because you're, you're contradicting it and people might be led astray because of that. Um, if, it's, if it comes from God, and I think it, it does, then it has, you can't set up an authority uh, like it. Um, just a couple of additional Bible verses about solo skip excuse me scripture um this is coming from some psalm 119 which uh if you haven't read you really should read that psalm because it's essentially a love letter from the psalmist to god's word the scriptures so uh <laughs> it's very very um important uh psalm but starting at verse nine how can a young man cleanse his way by taking heed according to your word with my whole heart, I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. So how is it that a man can cleanse his way? Um, is it by performing rituals? No, it's by taking heed according to the word. Um, the word is put forward as the method for doing this. And uh, we, need to, we need to be focused on the word. Holding the word um, in your heart um, as the psalm says, that's how one does not sin against God. Um, and then I brought this up last, um, last podcast, but I'll, I'll repeat it again here. Um, this comes from Mark chapter 7, uh, and it's a confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees, starting in verse 5. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, why do, you, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? He answered and said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain, they worship me teaching as doctrines, the commandments of men for laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. He said to them all too well, you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is korban, that is a gift to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. Making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down, and many such things you do. So here, Jesus is using the scriptures to evaluate a tradition. And as he said earlier in verse 7, 
the Pharisees were teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. They were teaching this is a doctrine. They were teaching as, no, this is true. So just because somebody comes to you with a tradition, says, oh, this is from God, the scriptures still get to evaluate the truthfulness of it. And as he says, they were nullifying the word of God because of this uh, tradition. And that is the last thing we want to do. We don't want to set up a tradition that contradicts or makes of no effect the word of God. Uh, in this case, the word of God was uh, one of the Ten Commandments, but the word of God is the scriptures in its entirety. That is God breathed. That is what God has spoken to his people. We dare not overturn it. Yep, that's exactly right. And I think that lays the groundwork for everything else that we're going to talk about today, because these other doctrines that we get are from the scriptures. And we believe because it's the sole authority of faith and practice, we can safely rest that these are true because they come from God's word. That's exactly right. So now we move on to sola Deo Gloria. Now, some people put this at the end. Some people, um, after talking about all of the, the solas, um, but we think it's important to talk about it first um, because it kind of lays the groundwork for what all the others after um, subsequent to it point to uh, in terms of our salvation. The sola Dei Gloria is the notion that salvation is ultimately, at least this is what I think it is, it's ultimately about uh, God's glory. It's not primarily about us. Yes, God does save us. Yes, God does love us, his people. He does care about us. He wants us to be saved, those who... He has chosen, but it's not ultimately about us and what we do that brings uh, that the glory is about. It's ultimately about God's glory. Whatever God does in his plan and in his decree is ultimately about him. We're just, if you want to put it, I guess, crudely, we're pawns in his, in his decree, in his plan. God uses us for his honor and his glory. And I think we see this most expressly um, and Sean and I were actually talking about this the other day in Daniel chapter four, um, where Nebuchadnezzar was brought low by God because of his pride. And then when Nebuchadnezzar is brought back to um, a reasoned mind after living like an animal for seven years, he gives all glory to God and that the, the nations and the peoples of the earth are counted as nothing. That God does whatever he wants and that no one can stay his hand and say, what have you done? So this is the notion that God is absolutely sovereign, that all he does is for his honor and his glory, ultimately, and that he can and has the right to do so because of him, uh, because of his nature. So this stands in stark contrast to the Roman Catholic Church at the time, which had introduced semi-Pelagianism, the notion that there had to be a cooperative effort in salvation. And so with that, the implication comes that, okay, if I can somehow contribute to my salvation in some way, don't I receive some of the glory for my salvation? Yeah, God helped a little bit, so he gets some of the credit, but doesn't that mean that I have to receive some of the credit now because I cooperated with God? Now, the reformers wanted to say that, no, all glory goes to God for our salvation because he's the one who initiated it and completes it. We do not contribute uh, to our salvation in and of ourselves. And so this notion of sola dea gloria was uh, emphasized by the reformers to ensure that um, God's sovereignty was protected. Yeah. Um, 
God is worthy of his glory. And as he says in uh, Isaiah um, 42, 8, um, I am the Lord, that is my name. And my glory, I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. And that's, that's, that's crucial. Um, we don't, when God sets out to save, he doesn't, he's not about to share his glory with uh, others. And we should be happy about that. We want a God who is fully glorious in of himself. That's, that's the kind of God we would want. Um, not one that uh, needs to rely on others in order to accomplish his tasks. Uh, another Bible verse that I think is relevant. Um, it's actually from probably the most famous Psalm, Psalm 23, starting at verse one. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And that's, that's the key part right there at the end of what I read, uh, for his namesake. Why is he doing all this? Why is he being kind um, to the psalmist here? Uh, for his namesake. And I, I've brought that up before to people, and the, they've said, um, oh, that makes God seem selfish. The idea that God would be doing it for God and not purely for his creatures. Uh, but you, you've got to understand that God, being God, has has the right to do things for himself. Uh, he is perfect. And I hate to use this terminology, but to use it, if there's any being that has the right to be selfish, then uh, it would be God because he is perfect. He is able to do things for his namesake. So if in your theology, you have God only doing things for humanity and not doing uh, things for the promotion of his glory, then um, you, you've got to rethink things, I would say, because uh, the, the Bible clearly teaches these two truths and they are not mutually exclusive. Um, and in terms of how we should view things uh, from Psalm uh, 115 verse one, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory. That is, as Christians, the mindset we should have. We should not be seeking glory in of ourselves but we should be seeking in everything to give glory to God, to promote God's glory. Um, that uh, it might be revealed to all the nations. It's not about seeking glory for us. Um, we're nothing but dust. Anything we have came from God. There's no reason to boast whatsoever. So we just, um, we seek to glorify the one who made us, the one who is worthy of that glory. And um, I think that's a, that's a foundation for the, the rest of the solos because um, they're going to be focused on God's actions or our lack of ability. And um, the reason God is structured this way is to demonstrate his glory. And I think that's a perfect segue into Sola Fide, which is our next sola, because this one I think is obviously by the Catholic church, it's misunderstood in terms of its application, but even among evangelicals, I think there is an implicit, um, I think there is an implicit leaning towards Rome's mindset towards this in the fact that there is a, somewhat of a contributing agent being given in faith. And this is what Luther, especially early on, um, as one of the early reformers wanted to discuss in his, um, in his defense of faith alone, when he saw this in the Greek New Testament from Philip Melanchthon, 
that it's a forensic justification as opposed to what the Latin Vulgate and the Roman Catholic Church had taught. It was mostly a infused righteousness with somewhat of a forensic justification. But that God is the one who imputes righteousness to his people, to their account, and counts them as not guilty based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That really is the doctrine of justification in a nutshell, the core doctrine of justification. And Luther said, after coming to a realization of this, he said, when I discovered that, that referring to justification, I was born again of the Holy Ghost and the doors of paradise swung open and I walked through. So he saw this as a tremendously freeing doctrine. As if you recall, Luther had tried and tried and tried to make himself holy, to atone for his sins through um, fastings, through physical suffering, um, through long confessions of his sins, and he could find no peace. But then he came to this realization through God's grace that just by believing in Christ by faith, that he could have true peace and true satisfaction of his sins based on uh, just simply believing in what Christ did by believing in, in Jesus Christ. And this led to him emphasizing that faith alone is the means by which we are saved. It's the means by which the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. And it's not through our works. Nothing we can do can atone for our sins. Um, and one of the core passages that uh, Luther would turn to would be Romans chapter 1, um, 16 and 17. I think primarily 17. For in it, that's talking about the gospel, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And Luther saw this in stark contrast to what the Roman church was telling you, that there were all these extra things that you had to do in order to make yourself right with God. But then Paul says here in the gospel, that very method by which someone is saved, it's just simply faith. It's faith in the gospel, it's faith in Christ, and then we are counted as righteous. It was tremendously freeing for him. Um, and it should be for, and it is for all who would believe after that. But this is a crucial doctrine. This is a gospel issue. You can't get this wrong. If faith is, is wrong uh, in terms of your doctrine of justification, um, especially on a, at the core level, it will affect your eternal state. If you teach a false gospel, that faith plus works equals salvation, you're anathema. Paul says that in Galatians. We talked about this um, a little bit last week. But this was probably the, the, um, the doctrine upon uh, which the reformers stood the strongest on, at least for Luther. He said this was the, the doctrine by which the church stands or falls. It was the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Um, so it was very, very important that they, they understood this. And it wasn't just that it was um, how they made themselves right with God. It was that God was the mover and shaker behind the faith itself too. And we see this in Philippians uh, chapter 1, verse 29. Paul writing to the Philippians, he said, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, verse 30, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So Paul is saying very clearly here that the faith that you have to believe in God is given to you by God. It's not something that you have in yourself. It's not something that is conjured up. 
It is not something that you cooperate with God on. It is not something inherent in yourself. It is given to you by God as a gift. And I think that is, and we even see that today, I think, in the evangelical world, this notion of autonomous free will. Um, that somehow, some way, God, in order for us to be held responsible before God, we have to be able to, on our own free autonomous will, reject or accept the grace and salvation that God has given um, to the world. The problem with that is it creates a situation where your anthropology or what you believe about man is going to be affected, right? Otherwise, you're left with something truly good that we can do, right? If I can believe in God on my own free will outside of his effectual work, outside of his complete sovereign grace in the process, then that means that there is something in me that is good that can actually act in accordance with God's law. This was the problem of Pelagianism. Pelagius said that, hey, I can, you know, man has some island of righteousness in him, whereby he can bring himself to a saving knowledge of God. And this is dangerous. We do see this in the church today. It is dangerous thinking because it leads it leads you to have a false understanding of man. It leads you to have a false understanding of what faith itself is as an actual gift of God and not something that we have in and of ourselves or we can bring about ourselves. So it's very important that we get this doctrine right. Because Paul is very clear in, in uh, his book of Romans that faith is, a, is something that we do not merit. Um, it is something that is given to us as a gift. Romans chapter 4, verse 4, it said, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So what is Paul saying here? If someone works towards uh, their salvation on their own merits, then God is obligated to give them something because God being just must fulfill his law in that sense. But that's not what faith is. The reformers taught that faith is just simply believing in God and receiving those blessings that come through faith, the righteousness of Christ, salvation, uh, saving faith, uh, salvation through, that, through those means. So we have to be very careful how we perceive um, this doctrine. It is a core doctrine, and the reformers saw it as such. Um, so we have to be very careful how we present it and how we um, teach it to others. So in, in doing a little bit of research um, for uh, this podcast episode, I was reading the Wikipedia page on uh, Sola Fide, and I was, uh, I'll say, annoyed to, uh, <laughs> to uh, see that uh, somebody had put in there that um, James chapter 2, verse 24 contradicts the doctrine of sola fide. They actually made an assertion that it contradicts? Uh, yeah. Like, wow. Yeah. Um, or at least they were trying to present the Roman Catholic position, but didn't, um, the way it was handled made it seem like they didn't have a response to that. They just presented the Roman Catholic position that, oh, it's <laughs> a contradiction, and et cetera. Um, so obviously, uh, I've, because of that, I feel the need to address this uh, little point. Um, and... Unfortunately, this is where I became, I'm not as prepared as I should be because my uh, Greek lexicon, which I'm going to use, is all the way over there. So I'm going to briefly go get that, and Dan can keep you entertained while I do that. 
yeah, these assertions that somehow there is a contradiction in scripture. And, and you know, Luther actually struggled with this passage as well as it relates to justification. He did not like the book of James. There are, there are like at least two or three books, I think, that he didn't like um, it, that even belonged in the canon. But James was definitely one that he struggled with with regards to its theology. He did not like the way James worded justification as it relates to faith and works, but be that as it may. Yeah. Um, so what I believe the, and it, to take it in that way would inherently um, create a contradiction mm -hmm. uh, in the Bible, which obviously as it is the word of God, we don't believe is possible, but um, because we do see that um, it does take, the Bible does teach uh, faith alone. So what's, what's that uh, we're justified by faith alone. So what's going on here? And I think the issue hinges on the fact that the word justified is not being used in the same way in um, both these or in, uh, in James and in other places in the Bible. Uh, for example, the word right, R-I-G-H-T, context determines what that means. Does that mean right as opposed to left or right is incorrect? Obviously, those are two different meanings. And uh, the word justified in the Greek comes from uh, the word, where was it? Uh, dikaio, which the first definition is um, verify to be in the right, justify, which I believe is the definition being used in James. And the second definition is put into a condition or state of uprightness. And that would be what we see Paul doing, where we're being declared righteous. Um, but the first um, definition, verify to be in the right. As I read through James, I think it'll be fairly obvious that that's what's going on here. So I'm going to read um, the section of James chapter 2, starting at verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? And the scriptures was fulfilled that said, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. For he, called, he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. So... What's going on here? Um, you'll note that in the beginning, uh, which verse was it? Um, where does he say, show me your faith? Um, How am I missing this right now? Uh, why can't I uh, 18, but someone will say you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Exactly. I think that is the, the hinge on which this passage should be understood here. Uh, because as we read, one of the um, definitions is to verify one to be in the right. So what is he saying here? He's, he's saying, show me 
demonstrate to me. Let me verify that you are correct, right? Um, so that that's how we should be looking at justify here. So when it says you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith only, how is it that we know someone is a true believer? Well, they have accompanying works. Um, yep. that's, that's the only way we know because we can't really see inside a person. We can see something that looks like faith, but we know people have false faith. This is, this is the key by which we know if somebody is a true Christian, do they put their money where their mouth is? Are they going out and feeding the hungry or do they just say, oh, go, go be filled and not help them themselves? It's a work that justifies a person in the sense of vindicating what they say they are or demonstrating what they say they are. And I think um, it's really important that he brings out the example of Abraham saying that um, mm -hmm. uh, Abraham was justified by works because in Romans chapter four, starting at verse uh, two or no, verse one, uh, what then shall we say that Abraham, our father was found according to the flesh for if Abraham was justified by works. He has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Uh, now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. So like I said before, if James is talking about in the sense of uh, justification, in the sense of being declared righteous before God, uh, we have a contradiction here because Romans chapter four says, no, Abraham... Uh, wasn't justified by works, but here it says he was justified by works. So the only way to understand this is justified is not being used in the same sense. And when we say a man is justified by faith apart from works, we mean it in the sense of he's justified, declared righteous before God. And that's an important distinction. Yeah. And what's interesting in this verse uh, or in this passage, verse 21 was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? That happened after, Gen that was Genesis 22, I think. Genesis 15 was before that, yep. when he believed God and it counted to him as righteousness, which he um, uses the example here. So his, um, James' examples don't exactly help the Roman Catholics in this position at all, uh, because Abraham was counted righteous before he actually did the work of proving his righteousness to God, which God explicitly says in uh, after he went to offer Isaac on the altar, that now I know that you will obey me, et cetera, et cetera. It was justifying his claim that he actually believed in God. And I don't see how this really could help Roman Catholics either. Even in verse 18, show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. They would say that faith and works go hand in hand, but that's not what James says here. He's saying, I want you to show me something that you've already done by what you're actually doing now. It doesn't seem to be helpful to them at all, but anyways. All yeah, right. That's, that's very important. Do you want to move on to Solus Christus then? Mm-hmm. All right. So Solus Christus, this is the biblical doctrine of salvation by Christ alone. This means that Christ alone saves. And this really was a sticking point, another sticking point that the reformers had with the Roman Catholic Church. And Matheson notes again, he says, the problem then was not the person of Christ. The problem was the work of Christ. The debate centered on the sacramental system that Rome had constructed, a system in which the grace of Christ was mediated to people through an elaborate system of priests and sacramental works. 
through the sacramental system, the Roman church effectively controlled the Christian's life from birth, baptism, to death, extreme unction, and even beyond masses for the dead, end quote. So this means that the church really saw themselves as the mediators of salvation um, in Christ, instead of going through Christ alone, who, as Hebrews says, is now our great high priest and is the only mediator between God and man um, as standing on our behalf before the Father. So really, this was to show that the church's actions and the church's role that they had placed themselves in were really unbiblical and attacked the core, um, one of the core doctrines of our faith, that salvation is through Christ alone. Um, and that atonement was through the church and not through Christ. And we see this, uh, biblically speaking, we see a rebuttal to the Roman Catholic Church's position, I think, in a very common, well-known verse, John 14, 6. John 14, 6, Jesus is talking to his disciples before he leaves this earth, or actually, I think it's before he was crucified. I can find it here. John 14, 6, he's speaking to uh, Thomas. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus giving very explicit teaching here, explicit using very explicit, unequivocal terms that he is the only way of salvation, which is coming to the Father, being reconciled to the Father. But it's only through Christ. And Christ, throughout the book of John, was very clear that salvation is in him, that you must believe in him to be saved. You must hold to him. You must turn from your sins. And so through this means... Um, salvation and reconciliation are possible, but it's only through Jesus Christ. It's not through any sacramental system that's given. You know, baptism, baptismal regeneration is taught by the Catholic Church or any form of uh, priestly mediation that the Catholic Church could have given. It was only through Jesus Christ, through the faith of the person that was being saved. That's where salvation was found. That undercut the entire system that the Catholic Church had created. But the reformers saw this as biblical. Um, they saw this as a gospel issue that people were being led astray, that those who uh, believed in the church as the means of salvation were going to uh, pass from this life into eternal torment because they did not come through Christ alone. So this is a crucial doctrine. We don't believe there are multiple ways to God. Um, we don't hold that, you know, yes, Jesus is a way, but the Jew, the Jew and the Muslim and the uh, Buddhists and the Hindu and the atheists are all going to get there eventually via their own worldviews. No, we believe you either come through Christ alone or you will perish in your sins. That's what the reformers taught. That's what the scriptures teach. Um, so that's why this is a gospel issue. Dan alluded to this verse, I think, uh, when he was uh, in one of his quotes, but I want to bring it out explicitly here. It's uh, 1 Timothy 2.5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So one mediator. Now, Roman Catholics will often try to say that even though they're asking for the intercession of the saints, uh, they're not really using them as mediators. It would be the equivalent of talking, uh, asking uh, a fellow believer that's living um, to pray for them. And um that might be true in what they say but i don't find that that actually reflect reflects their practice for example I'll, I'll quote here from pope john paul ii um and he's referring to mary uh being assumed into heaven she has not laid aside this office of salvation but her manifold Ooh. intercession 
but by her manifold intercession, she continues to obtain for us the graces of eternal salvation. Um, obviously, the word wow. me mediator isn't in there, but what else would you have that except that as a, a mediator? Um, and as we've, we've just read, there's only one mediator between God and men, and it's Jesus Christ. Um, it's not one primary mediator and a lot of other mediators that are sort of attached to him um, because then the parallelism would break down. It's there is one God and one mediator. It's not there's one primary God and a lot of little gods and a, one primary mediator and a lot of primary uh, little mediators. No, it's one God, one mediator. That's the parallelism. Um, so, yeah. Um, no, the only way to approach Christ, uh, God, the Father, is through Christ. Don't try to approach him any other way. Um, as we had read in uh, the section on uh, Soli Deo Gloria um, from Isaiah, God says, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another. And as Jesus is God, we know that we aren't giving any glory to any other. Um, and that's, that's an important reason why Jesus is God. But uh, when we hold Christ to be a mediator, we are giving him the glory. And if you attempt to make other humans your mediator, you are drawing away God's glory from him, and he will, he will not be happy about that. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's interesting, too. They say, well, you know, if they're trying to use the example of asking a fellow believer to pray for them, we're not praying to that believer to yeah. actually do something, which they're doing. They're actually praying to a saint or praying to Mary in the sense to actually do something on our behalf to get God to do something for us. That's very different than just asking a Christian to pray for you. Well, so the, the argument boils down to the word pray in English has the idea of ask. Now, I would argue that the fact that, like, I, I, I talk to when I ask a Christian to pray for me, I'm in the same room with them. Uh, like they can hear me. You're, <laughs> what you're, when, when you're praying for the saint to the saints, essentially you're, you're giving them some level of omniscience. And also frequently that's attached to you're talking to a statue or also doing the rosary or, or whatever. Acts of um, worship, right. That exactly. are only ascribed to God. That's <laughs> exactly. Ooh, um, yeah. Yeah. I would, I would, if it, I would, I'll say this example, and hopefully it would make any Roman Catholics listening un uncomfortable. If you believe that praying to the saints is equivalent um, to just asking another believer to pray for you, uh, would you ask uh, that other believer when they weren't in the same room with you and also in front of a statue of them with a, a bunch of candles lit around? Or do you think that would be idolatrous? Because <laughs> if you think that would be idolatrous, you're all of a sudden understanding um, what we see when we, uh, we, when we do that. And I find that a lot of Roman Catholics will say that, but that is not necessarily typical practice. They do believe that the saints are actually granting them certain favors. For example, um, when I was at, uh, at the abortion clinic one time, there was this Roman Catholic lady that had uh, just come to the clinic and she said that um, all the stoplights had uh had let her let her through she didn't hit a, a single stoplight and she was like and you know that's the mother the holy mother that got us to be able to do that it's like whoa okay um oh boy uh no actually uh <laughs> that would have been god um mary has no power to do that whatsoever 
but it's almost like the superstition flowing around that too because you know sometimes i think they'll wear like these pendants with saints on them or something like that as if they bring yeah. good luck or bring good fortune yeah I mean, hey rome catholicism classic for integrating pagan superstition but yeah anyways all right on to the last one sola gratia yep last of the five solas sola gratia means grace alone now, what this is referring to is that salvation, and I think this ties in with sola fide and, and with solus Christus, that salvation comes by God's grace alone without any merit or anything that we do to merit or bring about that salvation as if some, God owes us something. Again, this goes back to what the Catholic Church had introduced, a form of Pelagianism, that had man cooperating with God's work in terms of his salvation. So I do a little bit of my works and then God does his part. And then, you know, it, it brings about the salvation of an individual. Again, Matheson says, quote, although Pelagianism was condemned as a heresy at a number of councils, including the third ecumenical council in 431, it has raised its head in various forms ever since. By the late medieval period, the Roman Catholic church had fallen into a type of semi-Pelagianism. The justification of the sinner was seen as a kind of synergistic cooperative work between God and the sinner. The doctrine of sola gratia was the Protestant response to this. So the reformers wanted to, uh, wanted to emphasize that salvation not only was through faith and faith alone, but also that we contributed nothing along with that faith to bring about our salvation. It was all of God's grace alone. It was all of his work. Um, and we see this, I think, most explicitly in Ephesians chapter 2. And there's a faint, you know, we'll get to the famous verse in a second. But I want to go back a little bit um, and start at the beginning of chapter 2. Because I think this context gives um, more emphasis and informs the last verses here that we know the best. So chapter 2, beginning of verse 1. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one, no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. And the reason I wanted to read that entire passage and not just 8 through 10 was the emphasis that Paul puts here on God's work. There is nothing in here of man contributing to his salvation at all. It actually says in verse 1, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. A dead man can't do anything on his own, can he? It requires an outside force or outside um, mover in, in the spiritual sense to bring about this new life in the believer. We were walking as children of wrath. We were walking away from God. And so God was the one, by his grace, who had to initiate the process and bring us to salvation. Even to the point where it says that 
God had prepared these works beforehand for us to follow. So these works aren't even of our own doing. They were, uh, they were prepared beforehand by God himself. So the entire process from beginning to end is of God and is solely of grace. And we see this again in Romans chapter four. If God, uh, if you're able to contribute your, to your salvation, if Abraham was able to contribute some form of works to his salvation, he would be able to boast, right? He would be able to say, yeah, look, yeah, God did 98% of it, but I did 2%. I can boast. I have something to boast about. There's nothing to boast about here because it's all of God. We can't boast. We can't say, well, the faith was of me. The faith came from my own free will. The, the faith came of my own volition. The faith came from some island of righteousness within me is what Pelagius taught. No, it's all of God. It's a gift of God. It's given to us. It's an alien righteousness. It's an alien faith. It's an alien salvation. And we have to keep that on the forefront of our minds because as soon as we remove that emphasis on grace, we start to introduce our own works. What can I do? to make myself better before God. This is where legalism crept in, in the church in Galatia, the Judaizers, right? Hey, you gotta, yeah, I believe by faith, but you gotta be circumcised too, you, uh, you pagan Gentiles. You gotta be circumcised if you really wanna be a true Christian. They're adding to the gospel instead of just by faith in Jesus Christ and it's by grace alone. So this is what the reformers were trying to battle, this, this addition onto the gospel, that something has to be done outside of the work of God, and work of Christ alone, and through faith alone in him. So very important that we, um, that we get this part right, along with obviously solus Christus sola fide, but if we remove grace, our works will start to creep in. It, it happens every time. I think the uh, the best Bible verse for this, uh, or the best, I guess, two Bible verses for this, um, comes from Romans chapter 11, uh, starting in verse 5. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Right. So what the Apostle Paul is saying here is grace is in complete contrast to works. If it's by works, it can't be by grace. These are these are two fundamentally opposed things. So for someone to say, "Oh, it's by grace and by works," that's they're they're talking nonsense, um, whether they realize it or not, because grace fundamentally cannot cannot mean that. Um, grace, uh, the word really means unmerited favor. If it's unmerited, then how could you merit it? It doesn't it doesn't make sense. Um, and even in this passage, even so at this present time, there's a remnant according to the election of grace. The remnant being the remnant of uh, Israel, I believe, in context. Um, how is it that this res where does this remnant come from? Election, the word election means choosing, so it comes from the choosing of grace. God chose them. It didn't have anything to do with their works or earning their salvation. Yes, yep, that's exactly right. And that's interesting that... Um that tweet from Leighton Flowers that I'd shared the other day where he said not only, um, I don't know if I shared that with you, Sean, but he had, he had said that God chooses us, at, you know, essentially based on our faith in him. Um, it, it's the other way around. God chooses us because of his grace. And then we believe as a result of that. Mm -hmm. um, now yeah, I, I suspect he would want to say that faith, because the Bible does clearly chase teach that faith isn't a work that um 
I assume that's how we would want to get around this. It's like, oh yeah, we're not saying that faith is a work. So therefore the election is still by grace because faith isn't a work. Um, you, you, you start running into some dangerous territory where it's possible to turn faith into a work if it's somehow merited, not saying that he necessarily does that, but it is possible to turn faith into a work saying, oh God, I believed in you. Now you owe me salvation or something like that where you're, you're, you've merited it. But regardless, um, while obviously we do enter into God's grace in a sense because of our faith, at the same time, God's grace precedes our faith. Right. And uh, I'll bring up Romans 9, even though I know uh, he would not accept uh, this interpretation, no matter how correct it is, of Romans 9, um, starting at verse 10. And not only this, but when Rebecca also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, and Esau I have hated. So God's election happens prior to them having done anything, good right. or evil. Um, it, it has nothing to do with it. It. and um yeah <laughs> yeah that's correct and i think the danger like we're uh, where leighton likes to go with his with his emphasis on man's autonomous free will but he's always quick to or he he likes to emphasize that hey i'm not saying that we believe in a Amer- in that we're meriting salvation i believe in grace mm-hmm. by faith alone the implication of that if you are saying that you have the in you know the inherent ability outside of god's effectual work in in believing you know accepting or rejecting his um his call to salvation then that means that you have something in you outside of god's power it is inherent in you to do something that is good in god's eyes you have the ability and i know he would not say this explicitly but that's the implication of what you're saying you're saying that there is some sort of inherent ability to satisfy the law of God, at least in some sense, because unless we want to say that faith is not actually a good work. And this is, this is the problem you get into with that type of position. Um, Because you're either left with either God does it, or you have something in you that allows you to do it yourself. And if we're going to take Paul's words about meriting something in terms of God owing us something, then we would have to say that God then would owe us um at, at least in part um salvation because of that because if i can contribute to my salvation then god must owe me something as a result paul makes that very clear and that's what he grounds says well you know if if abraham was just five more works he'd have something to boast about because otherwise god would owe him something but he doesn't owe him anything because it's all of god completely through and through and that's i think really some of the uh the problem here in and i found the tweet i was referring to so he said, confessing in faith that your works can't save you isn't itself a work that saves you. If it, were, if it were, then Christ died needlessly. God graciously chooses to save whosoever trusts in his righteousness, and trusting in the righteousness of another isn't meriting your own righteousness. So he's saying that God graciously chooses those who believe in him, as we would say that God has chosen those who will believe in him before they've actually chosen him. So... You, you have to be very careful what you say. Otherwise, you can, you can fall into some dangerous um, territory uh, that can have or that do have implications for the gospel. 
So. All right. Um, that, that aside. Um, so yeah, we made it through the solas. Um, just taking a little uh, drive through church history these past two times and hope it's been enjoyable. Um, Lord willing, we will see you next week um, and have a great rest of your weekend. Did you want to uh, make a, an announcement about the debate we have planned? Ah, yes, yes. <laughs> Sean, Sean's trying to shoehorn that in there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so October 3rd, on that podcast episode, Sean and I are planning on having a, um, a mini quote-unquote debate um, about textual critical issues. Um, I will be taking the modern um, critical text position and Sean will be taking um, the TR position. And we'll be having a, a debate slash discussion about that. Um, and yes, it was, those of you who know about the riddle white debate around the topic also, uh, we, we did pick it somewhat because of that. Um, some of it was just because it was convenient for our schedules, but yeah. yes, it, it did fall on that day and we did mm -hmm. pick it partly because of that. But, um, yeah, so that is October 3rd. So what is that? One, two my weeks. calendar. One, two, or not two weeks, three weeks, three weeks, 1926 and then the third. Yep. So yeah, we will be having a discussion. We're gonna try and do it live. I don't know if we'll be able to do that, but we're gonna we're gonna try it. And there should be more information forthcoming on that. Um, but it'll be it'll be in a debate format. So I'm trying to remember, Sean. So we agreed. Was it ten minute Openings. opening statements, five minute cross examination, then five minute closing, right? Yeah, did we want to do five minute, and I like how we're discussing this live. <laughs> um, did we want to do two sets of cross X five minutes each? So five minutes, uh, one person, five minutes, the next person, then five minutes again, the first person, five minutes, the next. Yeah, we can do that. Yeah. That way this, we can have uh, make sure we have a uh, engaging and thorough discussion as much as possible. Yep. So yeah, we're, we're going to be doing that. Um, Sean and I do have differing views on textual critical issues, um, especially as it relates, uh, particularly as it relates to New Testament. So we're going to have a brotherly kind discussion yes. on that. And uh, we look forward to that. Anyways, um, everyone have a great weekend and we will see you Lord willing next week. Have a good one.